This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio Plus Radio. This week, episode number 106. Crow and I are coming to you live from the Indoor Air Quality Association's Mid-Atlantic Conference in Princeton, Jersey. And today's guests include Dr. Wei Tang and Dr. Eva King. Check out our Facebook page, give us a like, or go to the YouTube page and subscribe indoor if you would. Uh, we also have continuing education available. Send mail at .hugh.com. Before we get started, let's thank our market sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Okay. I also, I want to mention that, uh, and we'll have some more information in the blog on this, that, uh, Don, uh, Don Weeks and Lan Chi uh, are, are offering a matching uh, up to $10,000 for a memorial fund for uh, Dr. Phil Moray. It's a uh, scholarship fund through the AIHA. They announced at the uh, AIHA Philadelphia meeting they'll be matching up to $10,000. We'll put the link to that uh, on our web, on the blog, and then uh, next week we'll have it in the show announcement. All right, Cliff, let me turn it over to you for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Airtech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for being first to identify five as the number of graduates in LSU's College of Agriculture's first graduating class. The IEQ radio question for today, Friday, June 15, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's question. Name the organization that develops and enforces occupational health standards for New Jersey's public sector's workers. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. We've got Dr. Wei Tang. He's the founder and president uh, and lab director at QLab in Matuchin, New Jersey. We're here at the Indoor Air Quality Association's uh, Mid-Atlantic Conference. Wei is the uh, IAQA Regional Director of the Trenton Chapter, as I understand it. Oh, okay. Okay. He's the Trenton Chapter Director. We've got a nice crowd here and some really great presentations. Uh, Bob Bob Krell started it off today, and it was a very interesting discussion on the terminology we use to, to a big degree and, and also answering what it is we do. I think we don't do a good enough job of that. We could talk to Bob about that in a moment. But while I've got 
uh, way here, I wanted to ask him a couple questions. One, the lab business, you know, how is business in general for labs? I mean, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of labs out there and I'm, I'm always wondered, is it tough to make a living? Okay, well, before I answer in that, I would like to thank Joe, Bob, and even Eva coming a long way uh, down to Princeton, New Jersey to uh, support um, IAQA, mean Atlantic Regional Conference. So I would like to thank them for that. Um, then we go on to a question. I think the lab business in general is good. Uh, there might have been some focus shifting on the traditional uh, sampling and testing method. But in general, the lab business is good. I think not only the lab testing provide good data for investigation conducted by IEQ uh, investigator assessor, and also a lot of time, even that provide um, a good information for the consumer too, the homeowner, the building occupant, or the building manager. Uh, I think it's a different kind of purpose. But I, I, you, you have a couple of interesting um, papers, I guess, and then some things on the web. Mm -hmm. I noticed one of them was about uh, spore traps and, and some of the common, some things that consultants could do to ensure their spore trap data and the, and the, the use of spore traps is, is a better representation of the indoor environment than just, you know, throwing one up and taking a sample and not thinking more about it. Can you give us a couple tips on, on the right way to take a spore trap and, okay. and get the better data? Yeah, I just finished uh, an AIHC PDC. That's right. Okay. Yes, I, I went down with the whole laboratory analysis, also the sampling. I also did the um, education section on exactly uh, sampling for mold. I think that the, a, a quick point that people can take home and really use a particle in their job is number one, after you take an air samples using spore trap, you have to track, you have to check, check the debris loading on the infection trace. How do you do that? You can look, hold it up before you put on the label. Okay. Back on both sides through a weak light source, and you can see through it because there's a path. You okay. can see through it, see, see the debris, and you can purposely overload a sample uh, in, in a dirty environment and see how it looks like to be, you know, to be an overloaded sample. And then after you check that, I will recommend people load it at 50 percent of the capacity. Don't load over the cassette by, you know, if you cannot see 50% of the trace being clear, okay, then you got a problem whether you can have bouncing. That's a great right? tip. After, after that, you're going to have much less collection efficiency than a new one. I see. Well, I told people um, why 50% is, you know, imagine that you are the hockey player and the blade of your hockey stick broke in half. Would you keep playing the game or would you get a new one? Right. When you all have 50% of hitting what you have, would have before. So what I recommend people to do is at that point, if you load the infection trace to 50%, just grab a new cassette. Okay. Get a new one. Don't keep it using the old one and losing all the spore that you should have capturing. And just note that yeah. it was three minutes instead of five minutes or whatever. Yeah, it, at that point, it's not accurate anymore because there are too, ma too many spore have been bouncing off. So checking the debris loading is one important okay. thing, and also data interpretation. Make sure you compare both the concentration and the percentage. 
concentration and percentage. Yeah, they're okay. both important. You gotta check the percentage because if you're assuming everything indoor, everything airborne most four are coming from outdoor, they shouldn't have additional source indoor to contribute to the airborne spore profile. I call it a profile. Profile. It's okay. based on different percentage of, of the major airborne spore, and you have the profile. A profile shouldn't change too much when the air carry out those spore and migrate and go through the building enclosure. Okay. Yeah, you can have less, probably 10% of what you have outdoor, but the percentage of each spore, sports group, if they are all in a similar size of two to six micron, they should behave very similarly when they are set in, they're set up on the air, being filtered out by the uh, filter in the HVAC system. They should behave very similarly. So when you have much less spore in indoor environment, if they are coming from outdoor, the profile should stay remain very similar. And so when you compare the percentage, you can see that whether the profile, the ratio stay similar or not. If you want group, most likely the Aspergillus penicillium like Yes, that's most if common, right? It's in a much higher percentage. That means there's an indoor source that what, add to that. What is much higher? All right, I hear that there's, you know, you know, mm -hmm. discussion of that. You yes. know, if you if you if you're outdoor, let's say commonly when I take an outdoor sample, it will be two, three, maybe five percent will be as pen if if that. Or even less. Even less. Yes. Okay. If you have. Uh, three to five times higher in percentage, also concentration higher in outdoor, and that's a good reason you should conduct more investigation. Okay. Outdoor and indoor air sample comparison should never be used for the final conclusion of and more investigation. You need to discover the actual more close source, source like where they are coming from. Okay. It can be from you know the garbage in the kitchen can kitchen. To, you know, garbage can, right? Or right. maybe from a moldy library book. You know, your kids took from school, so you cannot be sure of that. Uh, any air sample result is due to a poor building performance, and then even more course, you, you have to really actually actually going to find those source before you can have your conclusion. I've got um, one more question before we shift gears here. Um, You've done a lot of work here with the IAQA, the Mid-Atlantic Conference, the Trenton chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I wonder um, when you sleep uh, and uh, what, what, what you know, for those that are thinking about maybe joining IAQA or participating, mm -hmm. participating in a chapter, what do you get out of all this work? I mean, I know I you do. Like it. Yeah, what that. do you get? Seriously. Well, I, mean, I, I you know. actually did lose some sleep last night every, uh, thinking about how did I miss anything I, I actually did but it's a minor thing but I, I, I served on IAQA board of director for almost nine years three terms and I I come to learn about what IAQA really is and the board of director I work with and the current one they are all very highly professional people they want to do good things great things for the industry they want to help people receive the education they want to have the correct kind right. of the, 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 the correct kind of education that we want to help in advance the whole industry by educating our member and also people who are interested in joining IAQN and 
and like our event, uh, like our workshop. That's why I spend so much time putting up the local chapter workshop and also the Mid-Atlantic Regional Conference. Hopefully, we 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 did attract more vendors and and more audience uh, attendees this time, and hopefully, we can grow from here. Basically, we want to provide service to people in this industry and um, whether they are member or not to those activities and hopefully those non-member they come to realize and know what IQ is about and then join us you know, for our mission to, to achieve the, the goal of advancing the whole industry's education um, by providing those uh, classes and workshops. I also noticed there's a lot of uh, interaction between the consultants and the contractors here and that, that you have a pretty good mix of those mm -hmm. two and I guess a lot of what the chapter meetings and this mid-Atlantic regional is getting people working together and, and introducing themselves to other people in the yes. same area and so yes. on. So. I think IAQ is pretty, very unique in a way that we have one-third about one-third of member. One-third uh, of the members? Yeah, are consultant and one-third of members are contractor, remediation okay. contractor. So I think this provides us a very good opportunity for people to join the discussion and find out really what's the best practice what kind of knowledge, what kind of, you know, guideline or what, what should we go about when we are working on the same job? How should a consultant and the investigator, the consultant and the contractor, they can all work together uh, for the better good of the health of the occupant? Well, you do a great job here, Wayne. Oh, I, I, I really want to thank you for joining us and having me be part of this. And uh, My pleasure. we look forward to coming back next year. Bigger and better things. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to shift way out of here. I'm going to go and talk to Bob away and Eva switch spots. We got Crow here helping you magazine. And uh, Bob did the first presentation today. Uh, I didn't get to catch anything, but I. I know a lot of what we're talking about is he kind of presents us to the public. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you see us and how we represent ourselves to the general public. I think one of the things uh, that throws, I think that throws us into a little bit of a mix with the uh, industry is that there seems to be a disconnect between the researchers, the um, the, the practitioners and you know and the end users consumers both commercial and residential and that was that was really the crux of my presentation today was um, you know how how do we better communicate first of all how do we better position ourselves you know, how does the industry uh, does the industry better position itself to, to offer services that actually make sense and resonate with the consumers and then moreover how do you actually message that information so consumers understand it and you have different levels of consumer knowledge. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems was, was the, this, this disconnect that I see in the industry. We have a lot of great research going on. You know, Sloan Foundation is doing a bunch of stuff. Many universities, many independent research organizations doing all kinds of good indoor environmental stuff. But it doesn't necessarily get distilled down and reach to, uh, you know, the general consumers, general public. So I think that's, that's one of the things that we really have to work on as an industry. Well, and I, you mentioned, too, it doesn't necessarily the practitioners even. I mean, right. you know, how many can read... Uh, you know these professional publications on a regular basis and then how do you take that information and put it into your practice that that can be tough and then you know take it another step like you just did down to the consumer level i was 
when you said, um, how many people even know what indoor air quality, what, what is indoor air quality? What does that mean to, you know, Christy, you have a wife there was uh, apparently asked you the question. So, well, what do you think? Do people even know what you're talking about when you're yapping about indoor air quality all the time? I mean. Yeah, you know, that's the problem, Joe. I mean, all of us in the industry, I think, are jaded. You know, we've been doing it 30 plus years doing this stuff. And, and the acronyms and all that stuff fall off our tongues. We're, you know, we're used to all the terminology. And I think we have this false assumption that the rest of the world understands what the heck we're talking about, you know? And, and well, I you think it's me. not the case. Yeah, it's not My the company case. name is the IAQ Training Institute. I don't even use indoor air quality. I IAQ Technologies. I mean, come on. Right. You know, Nobody knows what we're talking about. I mean, it's like we're talking to this computer right here. I, mean, I think the commercial world does. You know, the commercial facility, you know, property management world understands it a lot. But the general John Q. public consumer, I'm not so, I'm not so sure that they do. Well, how do we... How do we bridge that gap? I mean, where we, you know, what I know your your presentation wasn't about answers; it was more about the, the questions. I was trying to probe for some answers. So what what kind of answers did we get? I, well, I think we got some. I think you know, like for example, uh, some of the representatives of the IAQA chapter here, you know, suggested that organizations like IAQA can better, you know, put push information out from the academia research sector. And get it out, and get it out to you know to their membership and, and to that, and ultimately to the public. I mean, that's one of the things we try to do with the magazines, with Healthy Indoors, is try to we're trying to be that portal, that you know, a portal to do that. Whereas, um, I think it's sadly missing. There's not a lot of information that gets to the the general consumer, at least credible information. They go online, and there's all this you know crazy stuff out there. Well, the other interesting thing you did, and I I have seen that commercial by the way. Um, Oh, Velox. It's the indoor generation. Yeah, it's it's a, the indoor generation. If you get a chance, go to YouTube and, and put in the indoor generation and uh, Velox, manufacturer of uh, skylights and windows and so on, uh, put together a really interesting. Um, I guess it's a uh, a campaign mm -hmm. trying to get people to understand some of these things that we as indoor air people understand. You spend ninety percent or more. I think more. 90% of your time indoors and um, that especially young people today they they're really be outdoors they're getting they're indoors on a regular basis as we all are and they don't we don't know what's in that indoor environment a lot of times wow. how do we get attached to groups like that you know did they did they talk to somebody like you before putting that together do you know i have no idea i mean you know a marketing company put that together and they did a very good job production wise but i think what they what they did is they they took old information most of the stuff that's stated in commercial um is 20 30 years old yeah. susan valenia my co-publisher pointed that out she goes this is all stuff that we've been talking about tonight that they commercial they did they voice of a young girl um, and they, they voiced in such a way that, that it can you know they were dark representation inside of you know house mock-up box with the fog coming up right. or the mold all over it you know? <laughs> so it's what they did is I mean they, they over they sensationalized that but that's almost in a way that's almost what you have to do for the general public especially for your generation Z you know they're not they're not going to sit there and watch something for Three minutes, unless it's entertaining. It's got to be like fifteen seconds or less, essentially. Maybe, yeah, I mean, but that's a three-minute video. It's had almost, you know, over eight million views in less than a month. Wow! So that's, you know, and it's because it's riveting. I mean, it's like a movie trailer, 
you know, with the shining meets indoor air quality. I mean, it's like, wow, you know, you, you see this thing. And I saw Ask you one more question. It's on Skylines. Over. I want to get Dr. Eva King in here, but um, you mentioned that healthy indoors is kind of designed for consumers. I mean, at least to some degree. Yeah. Um, I get the impression, maybe I'm wrong, you're, you're not getting as many consumers as you would like actually reading the magazine. And, and I'm wondering what what you're doing, what your plans are to kind of answer your own questions from this morning. You know, um, what are your plans to get more consumers to look at the magazine? So, and yes and yes. Um, first of all, we are we're a B2B sort of, you know, in our print version. Our, our digital is designed, you know, anybody in the world can get it for free. Um, and so we are trying to, we're, we're partitioning the information and we'll be doing that a bit more starting in July. But what we're looking to do is have practitioner type information, industry information, as well as a lot of consumer level information so we can be kind of that go-to central location. So, you know, how do we get that out there? That's, that's a challenging point. We have a couple of things that we'll be doing, uh, reaching out to regional practitioners around the U.S. We'll start, start launching hard in the U.S. where we'll, we'll be working with regional companies to help actually help them cooperatively promote us within their markets in, in exchange for advertising in their region. Okay. And, uh, you know, so the thought is, that, you know, we can, we should be able to build on that quite quickly. You get a hundred companies bringing in 25 readers a month, you know, 2,500 new readers a month, mm -hmm. and they'll be mostly consumers. And they'll be mostly the people that they work with. And so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's the model that we'll be uh, pushing out later this summer. But we're doing, I mean, everything that we can do, we'll do a lot more uh, with social media. You have to, you have to do more with video. That's what's hard. You have to do more with video. I mean, we're, you got to do video. That's, okay. that's what, you, I, I, I firmly believe you can't transmit information anymore without that, without yeah. this medium. We, although, but uh, podcasts are supposedly booming, all-time high. Number, the number of them I know is an all-time high. Um, that's and true. apparently people are listening to them. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, the length of, uh, we do an hour show. It's tough for people to take an hour of the day. What yeah. do you think? And yeah, for consumer, I don't think it's ever going to work. I mean, consumers, we're not, we're, consumer, not yeah, no, no, we're not. It's a whole different thing. This right. is an in-depth type discussion, so an hour makes sense. But um, I think you you have to you have to almost fragment your information, you know, right to the general public. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the attention span it's just not there anymore. You know, you know, people don't read full articles anymore. Look at Axios and the way Facebook has distilled information. They put articles in short, two hundred, three hundred word uh, truncations. You know. Uh, of the content and that's what everybody's that's what they're ingesting now yeah you know so that's I, that's why I think you have to you know we have to adapt to that as an industry we can't the stuff that worked 10 20 30 years ago that's not gonna work anymore. it's not the same world Bob thank you and I'll, I'll bring you back in in a moment here I, John I think what we'd like to do is let's break for a commercial and thank our sponsors and by the way I want to thank our, our two newest sponsors which I, I forgot to do uh, during the introduction here, the Restoration Industry Association, RIA, RIA, uh, let me get to it right uh, here. RIA is the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. And by the way, we're going to have a, a show probably in July. We're kind of packed at the moment. Uh, Pete can see the Restoration Global World. Uh, they just completed their, their first uh, conference over in Australia. I look forward to talking to you. Also, AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, pay results for a rush. Learn at AEML.
how thought right. Let's thank our other joining me back with Dr. King. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. All right, we're back for the second half of our show. We're live from the IAQA Mid-Atlantic Conference, and we've got Dr. Eva King. Always great to have you on that. And, uh, get, so good to see you, too. Uh, anyway, since we last saw each other um you have changed your uh your, your job essentially right can you tell listeners need. a little what what you're doing now and, and what led to this uh pretty big change actually yeah pretty big change indeed so um i you know i work for uh, indoor biotechnology as a, as a researcher and um developing methodologies and and uh, handling customers and contract research all those kind of things for uh, for over 12 years and um Earlier this year, I made the jump, and I decided to, to change my profession and become an IAQ consultant. All so right. I, I started my own IAQ consulting business, Aura Enviroscience, and I have to say I am loving it. Absolutely good, loving good it. For you. Good for you. So the, the, you were in the corporate world. I know we talked a little earlier, and there's a lot of travel and conferences and all that, mm-hmm. but uh, you're still obviously doing some travel and speaking and so on. Sure. Um, what uh, what has your first impression been of doing indoor environmental quality? You know, you, you've done other types of uh, research-based, I think, more so than anything. Uh, and I noticed this morning you were talking about laboratory um, allergies that people that work with labs and animals that get. So you've done a lot of, you know, hands-on kind of stuff, but this has to be a little different. What's your first impression? <laughs> yeah, this is a little different because, I'm, uh, you know, for, for many years, I've kind of been the, the consultant to the consultants, yes. right? So when, when uh, you know, the folks who were going into the buildings and, and uh, going into the crawl spaces and that, everywhere. Crawl spaces uh, you know, are a big one, all right. Like, spaces, uh, you're on the you front say, line of crawl spaces um, now. <laughs> you know, they encountered something that they didn't know what to do with, you know, they would call me and I would try to help them um, remotely. And um, I'm really enjoying now actually being the one who is putting on the Sherlock hat, you know, and going into the building and trying to figure out what's uh, what's 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 gone wrong, where where are the problems coming from, and really, um, you know, going through that building with a fine tooth comb and try to try to find the issue and, and come up with a solution. And I really I really really enjoy doing it. Uh, I mean, well, you're a people person. Let's be honest here. <laughs> I mean, Eva, she she gets along with everybody. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say a bad word about Eva. So that's a big part of what we do, though. Yeah. Is yeah. You have to deal with the consumers in their home, and um, you know they have problems, and we're there to try and solve them. Uh, 
crawl spaces. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show about crawl spaces. Uh, you just did one, and uh, I love what you told me because, you know, it, it's a common problem out there. Apparently, you went to look at one, and uh, someone had already been done in. But let's tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this is interesting. So, this was a home, an old home that uh, had uh, this problem with a uh, wall in the crawl space, and they had a come in some beforehand, they just put plastic sheeting on it, just, just covered the and up the wall, and um, the hey, problem was solved. Well, water obviously was underneath the plastic, and the plastic wasn't sealed, so it was, the seams weren't even sealed. Mm. So, um, you know, it was uh, crawling into that space was like getting on top of a waterbed. It was quite impressive. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, and I got got in there, and at some point, you know, you put your knee down into a hole, and the seam in front of you just opens up, and there's just this wave of uh, of mud uh, and water splashing out of there. I think, yeah, your problem has not been solved. Let me tell you that. It has not. So, yeah, but it was it was um, it was an example for where you know it was. It's a fairly easy solution to all of this, right? Sure. But, but it's it's just a case of, of you know having somebody actually tell you how you can fix this problem, you know, and, and charging somebody for putting some plastic down is obviously not the solution to that problem. So, but yeah, but but that I, I really I really enjoy the practical component of that and and dealing dealing with the people who have the problems and really trying to help, trying to solve actual problems. Yeah, you know, it made me, when we talked about that particular crawl space, it made me, you know, I, I teach classes and then we, we have consultants that come in and, and, and contractors, right? I work with both. And we talk about conditioned crawl spaces. And, and it just made me realize just every, I learned something new every day, you know, that, um, and maybe I taught that guy. I hope not, but you never know. Right? <laughs> <You're not. laughs> but I, I try to focus, you know, we focus on enclosing and conditioning the crawl space, but then, Sometimes I don't think we focus enough on getting the water out from underneath that plastic as well. So I think that's a great story to relate to listeners. You know, you, and it's not cheap. I just had my son has a little construction company, and we live in a lake that has a lot of crawl space issues. The water's changing. Um, the water table has changed a little. There's some mining close by. We don't know if that's why. But, um, you know, when they did the job, they had to go in and dig tunnels. And, it, you know, an inch below the ground is rock. Um, so they're, they're trying to dig these trenches to drain the water and to get a sump pump in and all that. And that really was the most expensive and difficult part of the job. And sometimes I don't think we think about that when we, when we say, well, you can condition a crawl. Now, not every crawl is going to need the extensive type of um, channeling that we did and so forth, but I think it's something some sometimes people skip over. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're in Virginia. Was that I'm a Virginia just, yes. job? Yeah, that was a Virginia so you're kind of in crawl space, ground central. Yeah, yeah, crawl spaces everywhere. All right, so um, enough crawl spaces. <laughs> you're the allergen person. And while you were speaking, I was, you know, I was unfortunately pulled a couple different ways. But I wanted to ask you a question. You were talking about um, allergens, and, and as I understand, the, we're allergic to proteins. Yeah, um, allergens are proteins. Okay, so allergens are proteins, and these proteins can be found in many living, is it all living organisms that people can be allergic to, or just certain ones? Um, technically, it, they could come from everything, but the, the, the thing is, so all, all allergens, not all allergens are proteins, but not all proteins are allergens. Right. Okay. So, so you know, we, we need proteins. I mean, you, the, the meat you eat, everything you know, we we need we need a lot of protein every day just to survive. 
But there are certain proteins that, uh, for reasons that we as scientists don't quite understand yet, um, are prone to cause allergic reactions in right? So and there's, um, and, and you can find those proteins um, in, in a whole wide range of different organisms, right? In dust mites, for example, there's, there are certain proteins that are uh, found particularly in the fecal particles of the dust mites that cause allergic reactions in certain people. Or in cats, I mean, there's, there's primarily one, uh, one uh, allergen that is found and that cats secrete in, in their saliva and the sebaceous glands onto the skin and, and that's how it gets onto the dander. Um, that people react to. The thing is that um, we find allergens in all kinds of protein families. So protein can have different 3D structures and, and they ha can have different functions. I mean, they can be they can be digestive enzymes or they can be structural um, um, proteins. Or the building kinds. blocks of yeah. Of they can they can be all kinds of uh, all kinds of things. And we don't have we haven't found yet uh, what actually makes an allergen an allergen. Because we find allergen, allergenic proteins in all kinds of different protein classes and biologic functions. So, unfortunately, uh, nobody's been able to really pin down um, what it actually is about that particular protein that makes it more allergenic. Are, are we starting to learn a little better what what the like cascade of events is that occurs in the body? Uh, yes, we do. We do know how that works. Um, what we don't understand very well yet is why there are so many more uh, allergies in people nowadays than yeah. there used to be. That is, that is not something that's just perception that, you know, we think that more people are, are, uh, are allergic to things. That is actually happening. There's been a, there's been a steady increase in the prevalence of, of allergies and asthma over the last 40 50 years that that's real it's not uh, it's not just perception and not just through inhalation of um, allergens but also through ingestion is mm -hmm. the, are both of those growing not yes. just one yes. or the other yes. okay um, food allergies are uh, have been on the rise um, as well as as inhalation or contact allergies I mean, you can you can also have allergic reactions through through skin contact you think the last like uh, 30 to 40 or even 50 years, we've changed the way we build, we've changed the way we condition the indoor environment, we've extended our time indoors to multiple indoor environments, and we've changed our whole food chain. And that, right? Our food chain is, is currently, we have all this processed food that we didn't eat 30 or 40 or 50 right. years ago. And I mean, there are, there are lots and lots of studies that have looked at various aspects of this, and it really currently looks like like the, the reasoning behind that is, is kind of a more vague uh, of things associated with the westernized modern lifestyle, right? There is, there is the, you know, our homes are, are different, uh, you know, it's tighter. We're, we're ex we spend more time inside, we're more exposed to the stuff that is in there. There's different chemicals that you're exposed to uh, in addition to the allergens while you're in there. Um, remove less. Uh, which also has has effects on how their immune system reacts to things. Um, yeah, food processing. We're clean. We're generally cleaner. Mm -hmm. Or you, know, you, you might say, all right, but allergies are really really bad in the in the in the cities, and that's not exactly clean. But it appears to be not the right kind of dirt, right? It has to be the right kind of you dirt. You need the right dirt. <laughs> Come on, get out um, there and eat some dirt. So, so we the the fact that we we now know that the, our microbiome. Um, we were talking about this earlier. Um, you know the, the diversity of microbes that live in and on us 
has gotten a lot uh, a, a lot poorer. You know, there's oh, a lot, really? Yeah, okay. there's, there's a lot less. Uh, our, our microbiome now has a lot less diversity than uh, than it used to have. Our personal and, microbiome. Okay. Yep. Interesting. What about in the gut? Is that yep. also the yep, same? Yep. Okay. All, all of that. So so you know, the, the bugs that live on us. Um, there's a lot less of them, and, and the, the diversity is, is, and that appears to also have, have an influence on um, on things like allergies. But there's research appearing that a microbiome and our gut bacteria also uh, influence uh, other factors of our of our life. I mean, I right. came across a study recently that was talking about uh, uh, psychiatric. Uh, I, I was thinking. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the same with particulate. They think maybe particulate has something to do with. Oh, it can get in. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it gets uh, it gets into the in, into the system. So it's it is it is very complicated, and it's one of those. The more we learn, the more questions uh, we we ask. But um, that's a good thing. We're we're really we're really starting to see what's happening. You just brought a couple questions for me. All right, one. We have chemicals. You mentioned there's both chemicals and these allergens, kind of in the in the same indoor environment, and somehow somewhat interacting. I mean, they they have an effect on each other. Um, can people be allergic in the classical sense of the term to volatile uh, compounds or, or chemical compounds of any kind? No, that is uh, that that is a difference between a true allergic reaction, which is a immune reaction uh, involving uh, certain types of antibodies, which is called IgE. Uh, immunoglobulin E, that's a cascade for, for, for the allergic pathway, but whereas BOCs, those are irritants, they're, okay. you know, they're, they, they, trigger, they, they trigger different types of response, but it's not, a, it's, it's not an immune response uh, similar to what, what's seen now. I see. And that, the other question I had is the, the proteins, how do we do, how do I say this? Um, is there a way to denature or neutralize? Yes. Okay, because we're always focused on removal of them, and I'm wondering if maybe we're, we're I mean, like dust mite allergen. Dust mite is hard to get rid of. Yes. All right. you, you've got to keep your relative humidity below 50%. You've got to do the HEPA vacuum. Which is really hard cleaning. to do in a bed. <laughs> Very hard to do in a bed, exactly. <laughs> or your, your pet's bed, or uh -huh. uh, in a bathroom, or wherever, wherever it may be. So. Is there a way to denature? Is that the right term? Um, these proteins? Uh, yes, but. <laughs> yes, but. Okay. I mean, so there's there's a whole um, worked over the years worked with a, a whole lot of manufacturers of, of various procedures and cleaning products whose aim was to show you know this product denatures or it gets rid of allergies. Like bleach, was it at one time? Yeah. Thought yeah. to denature mold spores or yeah. something along. And um, you know. Oftentimes, it's, uh, you know, the cure is more deadly than it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like chemotherapy. But then one thing that I've, I've consistently seen over testing all these different products that were, were being developed at the time, that uh, frequently, if it, it, it might work really well for one allergen, but have virtually no effect on another one. And that is because um, all these allergens, they have different protein structures. And the different structures come with different stabilities, you know, different different physical uh, characters. So, so, uh, and then, you know, if it is something that really that really destroys all of them, 
uh, all of these proteins, it's probably also going to destroy your carpet. It's not good for you or well, your carpet. Right, yeah. okay. So, so there, there is that. So, but, but, you, but, but having said that, I mean, uh, all these allergens are they're, they're very soluble. So usually, um, if you can clean a surface, you know, a, a, a hard surface, if you can clean a hard surface with, with water, generally, you can generally get rid of all of them. Okay. Wash them off because right. they, are, they are soluble. But when you're looking at porous, um, porous materials and mattresses and stuff, right. bedding, I mean, uh, things get a little more complicated. Do so you know if anybody's working on a, a I'm sure someone's trying to develop, to develop a product for denaturing uh, the protein that causes dust mite allergy, for instance? Is that? Yeah, that I couldn't be allowed to talk about. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. So I have to kill you. I don't want to be part of that. I just thought I'd try. <laughs> uh, but I, it seems to me that's got to be one of the potential. You got two answers, right? You, you either dump or three. You don't let it in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Tough to do. Once it's in there, you clean it up. Mm -hmm. Not easy to do for dust mite, for instance. But or, you can encapsulate it. For, for dust mites, for example, you can yeah. very, there are materials out there that that uh, that form a really effective barrier to separate you from the, from what's been growing in the mat. The, the covers, you know, yeah, the pillow the, covers. But, and you, but when yeah. you go in for those, I mean, there's a lot of, of um, these encapsulated uh, uh, you know, covers out there that are pure marketing hype. There's a lot of pure uh, marketing, marketing hype. hype. Okay. There's, there's a bunch of them out there that don't do that squat. Um, <laughs> they have to um, they have to have a pore size of about two microns. Two, I mean, they have wow. to be super, super tightly woven. I mean, the, the, the dust tight. mites themselves are way bigger than that. But the problem is not the dust oh. mites themselves; it's the it's the fecal pellets, which are a lot smaller. Right. And they also break up. Fragments so, of that. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so there, there were in the late nineties, there were, were some studies done that looked at different, uh, different materials and how permeable they were for for those allergens. <laughs> and um, yeah, if you had a had a had, Microfiber uh, materials with a pore size of, of five, two or five uh, uh, microns, you're good. So, so you can you can separate yourself from it. So if you okay. if you, you know if if you do this this uh, encapsulate your mattress with that, and then um, once a week um, hot wash or your bedding. I mean that's the thing. You need to mm -hmm. you need to make sure that you remove keep removing the reservoir that that uh, that builds up again. How often would you recommend people actually get a new bed? Is there a standard okay. thought on that in the allergy world? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I would say once your mattress gets really saggy and you get a backache. Yeah, then it's time. Okay. I was just thinking but, about, you know, you've got these dust mites in. They get in there and, you know, the pillows. I mean, we change our pillows pretty frequently. I'm, I'm very allergic. That's part of the reason. I'm very allergic to dust mites. They drive me crazy. And Sometimes I don't even want to know if they're there. I mean, it's like, you know, I know. Well, they have a half million on you right now. They're about they have a half million to one million, right? On your clothing and everything? I don't know. I've never counted. Yeah, yeah, they're all over you. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't even want to think about that right now. But anyway, I have another question. Uh, Dr. You mentioned up there, there are no hypoallergenic dogs or cats. Is, nope. Did I get that right? You no. Did. You can't encapsulate one of them? You're money. Uh, don't buy you know it's funny because I, I remember I was so upset with uh, Barack Obama when he bought his hypoallergenic dog he was yeah. like no don't first dog yeah the first dog <laughs> you tell people these are the, there is such a thing and it's it's from what I understand not true no 
what so the way that works is, I mean, you people generally think that dog breeds that don't shed. You know, there's there's a, some some dog breeds out there that shed a lot of hair. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, you don't not having a sofa covered in dog hair, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. What most people don't get is that um, not shedding hair has nothing to do with not shedding parts, particularly that carry its powers. And what is it mostly the skin? It's, cells, dander, yes. the dander. it's um, you know, it's it's in the saliva. It's it comes out of the sebaceous glands the, the, um, on the skin, put onto. Uh, Onto the dander, it gets distributed and it travels on on on, on small particulates um, and gets carried in the air quite effectively. So it's not it's not necessarily the hair. I mean, you you, you don't inhale the hair, right? So if right. you think about the exposure, so you're not inha- inhaling the the dust bunnies, right? Um, so uh, the the dander is still produced even on the dogs that that don't shed, and uh, that still contains the dog allergen. Having said that, I mean there there are no dog breeds that are hyperallergenic. That just doesn't exist. No what studies have shown is, but at um, uh, within a breed, you know, individual dogs within the, within a breed can vary huge in their in their production of allergens. So, right. so you can have an individual dog that produces very little allergen. That that exists. That's mm-hmm. um, and then the next door one is uh, you know has has a hundred times more allergen production. That is that is. That is actually the case. How do you test that? Well, you test. You take samples. Yeah, it's a dog scraper. Yeah, you, you take samples straight from the dog. But um, this this uh, Dutch study um, showed that there was a big range of, of allergen production that differed by individual dogs, but not between breeds. Actually, some of the so-called hyperallergenic dogs dog breeds produce more, which is really disappointing. Yes. But if you look at the at the homes. Uh, that these dogs live, you know, looking at the at the at the allergen concentration of dog allergen in the in the homes that these uh, these dogs were part of, there wasn't any difference really in the dog allergen because mm-hmm. even just imagine that even if if an animal produces a, a relatively small amount of that, it's still the human environment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then some and, and you even with a low production. Within a fairly short amount of time, you reach accumulation levels that are a problem, and um, hmm. it's, you're just going to get with one dog. You're going to get to that problematic level a little bit quicker than with the other one. Okay, so it's going to happen eventually yeah. with whatever yeah. type of dog you have. Um, Cliff, I want to make sure. Do you have any? Uh, well, Cliff's mic's not on. I just wanted to see if Cliff. Uh, Cliff, do you have any follow-ups or questions? No, I'm good. Thanks. It's good to see Eve and Bob. I got you muted. Go ahead, buddy. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I have no follow-ups, but it's just good to see yeah. Eva and Bob. So that's good. For some reason I got Oh, well. There you go. We got you now, Cliff. Sorry about that. No follow-up questions. It's just good to see both Eva and Bob. So uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know you're writing a lot, and I, I want to make sure we get that uh, that Dawn Week announcement. Uh, Dawn and Lanchi are up to ten thousand dollars for Phil Moore scholarship fund, a memorial scholarship fund for Phil Moore. So I'll send you the link for that, that in the blog, etc. Any follow-up questions or thoughts? I mean, I think it's it's great to see a regional event, you know. And I, I don't know, you know, I've been seeing the industry the trend in the last decade. Seems like 
regional events have potentially more value, mm-hmm. right? I mean, more networking. There's more. I mean, honestly, you know, live events. The, the power in live event is more for the people interacting, right? The offline discussions, all that stuff. And you know, like events, the bigger an event gets, the less that happens, right? And you know, you do stuff online. Online's great, but online you can't do that interactivity. So like these regional events, I think you know, I think they play in really well. They're they're you know they're cost effective as far as attendees don't usually have to stay overnight. I mean, obviously, exhibitors or people right. coming down to. But you know, most of the attendees here are driving or they're attending, so they're not you know they're not incurring that big cost to come and see a good live uh, uh, series of presentations and then get to interact with their peers, which is you know that's invaluable. And I have to say, I mean, the the Trenton chapter here; these guys have been doing a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah, Tom Baccaro and, together. and uh, really, really uh, Mike Keller is a part of that, and then Wei Tang. Who else is on your board, Tom? That's it. That's it. That's the. Yeah, yeah. he's doing a great job. They've done a fantastic job getting this together. Yeah. Probably the most active in the in all of IAQA this chapter, yeah, is, uh, so. from what I understand. And, yeah. uh, done a great job. All right, one more question, Eva, before we go. Um, Okay, so now you're an indoor environmental consultant. You got your CIEC, I noticed. So apparently you felt that had some value. I'm glad to hear that. Um, And you go to homes. What's your take on sampling for allergens? I mean, is it, if I've got a home that I know is a little moist, should I, can I just assume there are dust mites there? Should I take a sample, maybe? Well, you can't. The thing, thing particularly with dust mites, you really can't assume. Um, you cannot assume? You cannot assume. Okay. Um, you, yeah. So you, can't, you cannot make those assumptions. If there's a cat in the house, you're gonna, you, you know there's cat allergies you know there's in cat, there. Right. So, I mean, you might, might as well not. Or dog, the same yes, thing, right? Yes, same, okay. same thing. But with dust mites, is one of those things you cannot make any assumptions. Um, you might have a high level of dust mites, but your neighbor doesn't. Um, okay. Same humidity levels, whatever. It's it's a uh, yeah. You really can't make make assumptions there. Having said that, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't. I mean, I I I don't routinely test for allergens myself. Um, okay. It's it's really. I mean, as with all with all sampling, it it needs to be hypothesis based, right? You need you you don't just go in there and take. And take some take some air samples and it must be hypothesis what are you yeah. trying to prove or disprove you know, it's, just, exactly I mean it needs every any sampling needs to be hypothesis driven and um, so I mean if I'm if I'm working with somebody who is uh, who, who, who knows they're allergic to certain things and there is a there is a chance that that you know this, this might be an issue in this house or in this this office building then you know you're going there with uh, to test the hypothesis, but I don't I, I I don't and I would never recommend to anybody have never recommended to anybody to just randomly go out and, and, and collect allergens. You know, same same as with all other samples. Along those lines, if I take an allergen sample here, an allergen sample there, am I going to get oftentimes very different levels? And then follow up to that is are the levels that you use. I know most of, most of the time I tell people use the labs levels of what's kind of low, moderate, and high. Do those really matter? I mean, if you got it, you got it. Um, yeah, they do matter. Um, okay. There is because the with with the methods that are out there now uh, to detect allergens, they're extremely sensitive. Which uh, you know, for some applications, like if you're taking very short-term, uh, short sampling time uh, samples in, in occupational air, air sampling, air for sample. example, those those I was talking about laboratory animal allergy testing, 
where um, you know you you might be only looking at 20 liters of air um, okay. and looking for look with that looking for for um, to hit OEL targets of, of five nanograms per cubic meter, which I mean that's that's tiny. Um, the methods that we now have, they are they're uh, sensitive enough to to do that to mm -hmm. go to get to those levels. But that means that you also have that, those same sensitivities if you're sending in the, a, a collected dust sample, right? Okay. But in a dust sample, you know, there there's always there's there's always the difference between what is detectable and what's relevant. Okay, right? that's a good way to put it. What's detectable? What's relevant? Okay. Not not everything that is detectable matters, right? Gotcha. So. So if um, you know if 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 you could could detect that at some point there might have been a mouse in this room. Yeah. Right? Okay. That's good. That's, that's a great a, example. Yeah. Or that mean? is there actually a level of mouse allergen present in this room that might cause health effects? Interesting. And there's a difference there, and that's and and for for some for some analytes that's the difference between what's detectable and what is relevant is likely to actually be a an issue can be huge. Hmm. So. So yes, it's those those uh, those levels that the lab tells you um, they 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 have a purpose because not everything that's detectable is is boring. That's true for all indoor environmental testing too, right? I mean, every yeah, you know, is it detectable or relevant? You know, it's like yeah. the test that's not very sensitive. You know, right. where whatever you detect is going to be relevant. Uh, yeah. Sure. Right. So, but but um, it, for anything that has that has good sensitivity, um, there's always the yeah, I got a number, but does it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All right, last one. Um, so we're we're talking allergens, and um, I'm just wondering for those who are allergic. Uh, I've got dust mite. I'm allergic to everything. Um, are, are we? Are, are you seeing any hope in the future that we will have um, better ways of treating allergies? As I really hope so. You do. Okay. <laughs> I I really hope uh, they're going to figure that out at some point. Um, we're just I mean, not there yet, though, right? I mean, there there's some there's there's some some very promising uh, therapies out there where you know you do immunotherapy where you get allergy shots. Mm -hmm. uh, for, and those, but that's been around forever. Yeah, it's been there, around, right? and there, but but there's there's uh, new things uh, now where you don't have to actually get the shots and where you get like sublingual tablets, oh, okay. drops, and things like that. So there there are those kind of things that are being developed and uh, are in, in some are out, some are in, in various stages of clinical trials. But um, are they all immunotherapy based, or are there also some nothing where we're going to look at my DNA and go, hey, here's your problem, let's uh, fix that? No. That, those those particular things are therapy based after the fact, you know, after you're already allergic. But okay. It would certainly be a wonderful thing if we could figure out, you know, what what's what's really the key to all of this, and is this something? Is is this a switch we can turn off? That would Fantastic. be that would be the multi-billion-dollar switch. <laughs> Maybe I'll figure. Cliff, that's the multi-billion-dollar switch. Let's figure that one out. Huh? <laughs> go, go at it. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, this is Radio Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests. We had Dr. Wei Tang, Dr. Ava King, Bob Krell, and uh, I think that was it. Right? I didn't have anybody else on. And thanks to the Mid-Atlantic uh, Mid-Atlantic Conference attendees for uh, letting us barge in on your uh, event here. And uh, John. Let's wrap it up from here. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.